Here's a bit of news that will not make you feel warm and fuzzy. One in five Americans are at the risk of losing their jobs to automation. And when I say automation, what I mean more than anything else is artificial intelligence, AI. That does not have a simple answer, as you might guess. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I'm going to, there's a degree to which I'm afraid I'm going to reject the question because. You are or talk, reject the question. I am. Okay. Right. The, most of these, of these transitions are, uh, are in fact, uh, very gradual. Uh, and uh, if we begin to discuss AI, I will illustrate to you how astonishingly gradual that all is, uh, uh, that, that these things take typically a couple of generations to actually uh, uh, begin to, to uh, burrow themselves deeply uh, within society. Uh, and that, 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 is, uh, that is typical. The telegraph uh, introduced people to electricity, okay? Before that, it was nothing, just a plaything and a sort of little odyssey that, that scientists would, would fiddle around with. It's not as novel as some people might think. Uh, I, would, I would date it from about the middle of the 19th century, is when people begin to look for new technologies and to expect that they're something new down the road, something that they might have to pay attention to, something that's going to change things, something that's going to give them new choices. Never, never forget that technology is, at root, a human activity. We human beings create technologies. We human beings are in charge of the technologies, okay? Uh, and the technologies have the flaws and the foibles of human beings. Did you know that several hundred years ago, a profound yet subtle change began to take place in European culture? It was the culture of improvement, or perhaps, more accurately, a culture of communicating about and celebrating improvements, new ways of doing things, new technologies, new discoveries. Before that, human response to change to improvements was confusion and fear. The apprehensions were always similar. Who's going to get hurt by this new innovation? And what the heck am I going to do with this new thing anyway? Well, we have the same apprehensions about AI, artificial intelligence. Who's going to get hurt by it? But our problem with AI is not so much that we don't know what to do with it. Rather, it's that we haven't yet figured out what we shouldn't do with it. Hey there, news peelers. Today is September 22, 2023, and this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. 
I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee, or your favorite drink, or both, and let's get into it. This summer, the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, released an ominous report that one in four people in developed economies, which includes our economy, are at risk of eventually losing their jobs to automation, which, of course, includes artificial intelligence. The job loss rate will not be the same in all developed economies. For example, in the United States, the United Kingdom, Sweden, and the Netherlands, one in five people will lose their jobs to automation and AI, so about 20%. In other countries, such as Hungary, which has a thriving manufacturing sector, including a robust car manufacturing industry, the job loss rate may be more than 35%. I learned about this report from a Wall Street Journal podcast, for which I've dropped a link in the detailed caption of this episode. Well, I don't know about you. <laughs> to me, it seems like AI will change everything. It's really disruptive. So, with enthusiasm, I asked my guest, Dr. Robert Friedel, about the history of disruptive technologies. But right off the bat, I realized that Dr. Friedel was not going to make it easy for me. He asked me, disruptive to whom? Um, uh, well, I guess to everyone. But that's not how it works. First, what may be disruptive to me may be the natural next step for you. Second, all disruptive technologies take a very long time to quote-unquote disrupt. But surely he doesn't mean AI, right? Because AI is moving at a pretty fast clip, right? No. The development and discussion and adoption of AI is not moving as fast as you might think. Here, Dr. Friedel cited an authoritative book about AI, which was written, wait for it, in 1976. Well, I guess what's different about AI is that we fear it. Not so much. That's not a big difference with the past either. Dr. Friedel explained that fear in our own creation is not new. He gave an example that we all know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, a book that was published in 1811 more than 200 years ago. Of course, there are the robots, stories and films about robots go all the way back to the early 1900s. Well, what about losing jobs? Dr. Fidel gave plenty of examples of innovations that led to job losses, but he highlighted two points. First, those who adapted to new technologies and learned new skills didn't lose their jobs or got better jobs. And second, new innovations made many improvements more affordable for the masses. Of course, I was eager to ask him about the story of the Luddites, the 19th century English textile workers who raided mills and broke weaving loom machines. Here, Dr. Friedel beat me to the punch and explained how machines made clothes plentiful and cheap. So, after all of this, what's the most important disruptive technology. Dr. Fidel believes that the most important technological innovation in the last 1,000 years was the movable type printing press by Gutenberg, because it changed everything. It changed how we communicate, how we remember, how we teach, how we learn, 
and how we capture our culture. So while we don't know how a technology or an innovation of sorts will change our lives down the road, we do know that it takes a long time for change to come. A prime example of that is the automobile. We also know that all new technologies were promoted, at least initially, as being good for the world. For example, automobiles were touted as being friendly to the environment. And plastics, yes, plastics were promoted as being better for animal health. But over the decades, we've seen how cars have damaged our environment and how plastics, such as plastics in the ocean, are harmful to animals. Dr. Fidel is a professor in the Department of History at the University of Maryland and also an affiliate professor in Maryland's Department of Environmental Science and Technology. Before joining the University of Maryland, he was a historian at the Smithsonian Institution and at the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. He has been active in numerous capacities for the Society for the History of Technology and has been a contributing editor for American Heritage Invention and Technology and an advisory editor for technology and culture. He has had several fellowships, including to the Smithsonian and to the Dibner Institute for the History of Science and Technology. As you've probably gathered, his research expertise are in technology, science, and environment. He has written several books on the history of technology, focusing largely on the nature of invention. His latest book is a wide-ranging survey of Western technology since the Middle Ages, and it is titled A Culture of Improvement, Technology in the Western Millennium, uh, which we discuss in this episode. To learn more about Dr. Fidel, you can visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Dr. Fidel and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Fidel, it's a pleasure to have you in our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. AI's impact on many industries, such as the movie industry most recently, they went on strike, is in part the inspiration for our conversation, my my, my conversation with you, um, such as how new technologies impact our world. So let's start with a foundational question here. How do we define a technology as disruptive? No, that does not have a simple answer, as you might guess. Yeah. Uh, You have to... In fact, I'm going to... There's a degree to which I'm afraid I'm going to reject the question because... You are, or reject the question. I am. Okay. Because... um, I have to come back with uh, disruptive for whom? Uh, because ah. uh, one of the things that we have to think about whenever you're talking about the influence of a technology is that technologies have very different kinds of effects on different kinds of people. Uh, and uh, what may be disruptive for you might be sort of hum-hum for me. Uh, So now I know what we're talking about is something on a larger social scale. Yeah, yeah. But even at that scale, 
uh, we end up with uh, the need to differentiate both in terms of who and in terms of when, because some technologies are have uh, very quick effects on certain populations, uh, and those effects take time to have larger ripple effects. So uh, what is disruptive in a technology? When technologies uh, lead us, and I use that term very carefully, when technologies lead us uh, to do things substantially differently from the way we did them before. Would one way of defining technology be disruptive technology be technologies that change status quo? So uh, again, the 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 the, 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 the lack of specificity in that characterization just doesn't work because again, my status quo is not your status quo, okay? My particular condition, social, economic, cultural, physical, uh, is mine. Uh, you might have a technology that, in fact, changes your situation, any number of elements of that condition, uh, uh, substantially, uh, but it may not change mine. Or, as I said, there's a chronological element here. It may change yours quickly. It may not change mine for a generation. Okay. If if there's not a clear, um, even um, or succinct uh, definition of uh, what it means to be disruptive as far as technology goes. Are there technologies that have been labeled disruptive in our history? Yes. For, yes. So, for example, AI is one that uh, everyone talks about how it's going to change everything. Um, so, historically, give, give us some examples, please. Um, my favorite example of a disruptive technology, uh, it, not everybody, because it's so old, but... Uh, Printing with movable type. Printing okay. with movable type. Okay. Printing with movable type. When um, uh, 20 or so years ago, when the millennium was about to turn, I was approached by any number of journalists and media people saying, ah, what would you call the most important technology of the last thousand years? And they clearly wanted me to say something like the internet or the computer or something like that. And I would sort of see their faces fall as I would say, oh, I would say Guttenberg and his printing press. <laughs> <laughs> and if they permitted me at that point, I then explained that you want a technology that eventually changes everything. <laughs> That's one. Uh, uh, and that uh, 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 that's my favorite example. What, um, why did the movable type printing with movable type change everything, you think? Because uh, one of the most fundamental things about human beings is how they communicate with one another, how they remember things, 
how they teach things, how they learn things, uh, and how they capture their culture. And printing transformed all of those things. Uh, again, it's an example of where it changed it for some people very quickly. It changed it for other people much more slowly. It changed it for some people profoundly. Those are the ones that were literate, were already knew what a book was and knew what to do with it. The people who didn't know what books were and, or what to do with it, uh, it took a generation or two. That's actually a really great practice. example to, to talk about sort of the temporal impact of a technology. I, Earlier you were saying, you know, it can change, uh, bring change for different people or different segments of society at different times. And this is a prime example of that. If you ain't reading, if you ain't literate, <laughs> you know, right. whether it's handwritten <laughs> or it's printed, it doesn't make a difference to you, right? Exactly. That's yeah. exactly right. Um, That's right. And I think another thing that it did, it probably made uh, books much cheaper and perhaps not in the full immediate term, but in the long term. Well, it, 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 it cheap. that's sort of an understatement of uh, it made books much more plentiful. It made books, it transformed the book from something that was rare and typically treasured uh, that was tightly confined to a particular location. Uh, because of the labor and effort that had gone into producing it. Some of them were something. even chained to, to library shelves or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. Uh, and even if it wasn't chained, you certainly weren't allowed to walk away with it. Uh, so we then transformed the book within it, uh, in some cases, within as little as a single generation, uh, into something for which there is a widespread market. Uh, for which uh, there are much greater audiences. Uh, people begin to see the possibility of using books and literature for things like engineering, for example. One of my favorite examples is that once you begin to have printed books, people can make it worth their while to write down the recipe for things or the instructions on how to make things to give you illustrations on how the machines work and how everything fits together, uh, and then to put that out uh, where uh, everybody can see it. Like like uh, in a patent. Right. I can't, I can't overstate how radical that is because we were in a world where knowledge and techniques were largely kept hidden, or if not hidden exactly, they were so precious that you were very careful about who you told about it, about uh, what kind of information and knowledge you let out. But once it become possible to uh, make these things uh, readily available uh, and actually to create markets, uh, the whole idea of a market for books uh, that seems so obvious to us, but but before the printing press, there really isn't a market for books. Yeah, it didn't a, exist. Yeah. Uh, so 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 that's that's why that's my key example of disruptive technology. But as you as you point out, it illustrates how complex the notion of disruption is, even when it's on that gigantic scale. You have to talk about who being disrupted uh, and how and when. Um. Dr. Friedel, at the turn of the millennium, reporters came to you and asked you for the most disruptive technology over the last thousand years. Um, 
So let me let me let me refine that question. How about one or two disruptive technologies in the last couple of hundred years? Do you okay. have favorites? Do you have favorites? Or fair enough. Uh, I do. Uh, one that is obviously a favorite of mine because I paid a bit of close attention to it is electric light and power. Uh, that is introduced uh, about 150 years ago. Uh, and uh, it builds on uh, another only slightly less disruptive technology in that was telegraphy. Uh, telegraphy, okay. Uh, so uh, the, te the telegraph uh, introduced people to electricity, okay? Before that, it was nothing, just a plaything and a sort of little oddity that, that scientists would, would fiddle around with. Uh, but uh, once you figure out how to make uh, electric... I'm sorry, let me interject you here, if I may, please. When you said sure. the telegraph introduced people to electricity, this is because it made it immediately useful for them, and that's how they got introduced to it. Is that where... Is that... Right. Is that the reason behind right. it? Okay. Okay. That's right. That's yeah. Right. And it and, and it and it it it. I mean, a telegraph is essentially a a, a use for uh, an electromagnet. Yeah. Yeah. So this is again, this is a good example of something that was just a kind of philosophical tool, or something you, or, or even a, a toy. Uh, but once you show that it can be used for uh, long distance communication. Uh, and that you can do so reliably and at large scale, uh, then people start paying attention to electricity. And that's important because people weren't experimenting that much with electricity until this point. It was just said it was very esoteric. But it becomes less esoteric when it becomes economically important. And that's where Edison is a great example because Thomas Edison learned to be a telegrapher, and then he learned to make money by improving telegraph instruments. And that's what gets him to think about electricity and what other uses can be made for it. And then when, as I said, about 150 years ago, we get the introduction of the electric light and then the power systems uh, that go with it, uh, we again have a very widespread disruptive uh, technology. It takes, again, it takes a two or three generations to have that kind of, uh, of, of effect. But uh, the effect was, was profound and widespread. Um, your, one of your favorites in the last 200, as far as disruptive technologies is concerned, is the electric light and power. We just discussed that. Let's talk about its disruptiveness. Why was that disruptive? What did it disrupt? Okay. Well, let me back up a little bit. Again, this whole question of disruption and think about what technologies actually do and how do we, how do we understand what effect technologies have. And one way that I describe this is that technologies change the choices that people make. Technology met does not make us do anything. Huh. It changes the choices that we ourselves make. And 
it's a good question. We have to study every time a technology comes along, every time we want to understand its significance, we have to ask ourselves, what are the choices that that technology changes? How does it change those choices? Now, when we start asking that question, then there are all sorts of wonderful issues that then come to the fore. One of them is whose choices? Who is making the choices for whom? for that matter. So in the case of electric light and power, for example, at a very obvious level, light is one of those things that human beings like to have and like to have control over. And the electric light gives those who can afford it, which at first was only a small number, uh, the ability to manage and control light as I said, which are kind of a, a universal value, uh, very readily. And then the choices that they have about the use of electric power then give them all sorts of choices that they can then use in all sorts of ways. In the household, for example, you can then begin to have electric fans and, and uh, uh, electric motors of one sort or another. You transform transportation by giving people choices. They don't have to take electric streetcars, but when you give them electric streetcars, you say, you can either have an electric streetcar or you can take this horse bus, horse-drawn omnibus. Uh, people tend to go for the electric streetcars. <laughs> and, and, and then the, the, the implication, the second and third order effects of the choice of, say, taking the electric streetcar uh, are themselves uh, uh, ways of changing choices of, of people. Then they live in different parts of city, for example, uh, because they now have streetcar suburbs. Uh, they uh, may uh, they live in high-rise buildings because they now have electric motors that will operate elevators. And air conditioning, uh, right? So they don't yeah. bake in there. Eventually, you get into air conditioning and a whole host of things of that sort. Uh, but again, I hope you begin to see how useful it is to start thinking about choices, because I don't have to live in a high-rise building. I don't have to live in a climate that called for air conditioning. But the choices have now been given to me to do, do so. And that that's when we begin to understand what technology's effects really are. That's true. Um, there are many um, small operations, restaurants, or little snack shops that no longer take cash. <laughs> you have right. to use right. your credit card or right. your Apple right. Pay, and then you make a choice. Do I want to buy from these guys or do I want to go to the next <laughs> That's place? Right. Um, we'll be back after a short break to talk about society's reaction to disruptive technologies. We'll be back. This summer, actors and writers in the movie industry went on a massive strike because of their grievances about their compensation, the royalties they receive, and the use of AI, artificial intelligence. As my podcast guest, Professor Thomas Doherty explained, this recent strike is similar to the 1960s strike in that in 1950s, the years leading up to the big 1960 strike, technology changed everything. And back then, that new technology 
was television. The technology that is threatening Hollywood jobs now is the streaming and artificial intelligence. Professor Doherty explains how the situation in this strike is much more dire than the one back in 1960. In the past, the new TV technology threatened Hollywood jobs and incomes. With artificial intelligence, however, the studios not only could potentially supplant writers, but they could also own the actor's likeness. What that means is that with AI, you don't just lose your job, you lose yourself. I provide a link to my conversation with Professor Doherty in Season 3, Episode 29, in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Friedel. Dr. Friedel, we live in an age when we openly, you know, embrace new technologies and make choices accordingly. But regardless, most people are enthusiastic. We expect um, new technologies, constant change. Um, but was it always like this? No. Uh, well, the thing is that the technologies. We live in an age where we expect technologies to change. We're constantly looking for technologies to change. That's fairly novel. Uh, it's not as novel as some people might think. Uh, I would I would date it from about the middle of the 19th century is when oh, people wow. begin to. Okay. People begin to look for new technologies and to expect that they're something new down the road, something that they might have to pay attention to, something that's going to change things, something that's going to give them new choices. Uh, Dr. Fidel, you just went back to the middle of the 19th century and you said people, quote unquote, people begin to look for. Is that sort of like society at large or the elite of society back then? Okay. Okay. Like Britain, France, and I guess Germany and the U.S.? Okay. well, one of the things that happened in the 19th century is that the people that we're talking about, and you're absolutely right, it, it is a, a, a subset of the larger population, mm-hmm. uh, but that subset expands enormously. Enormously. From, say, enormously from, say, 1820, when it would have been a relatively small number of individuals who would have worried about steam engines, say, or something like that, all the way to 1890, roughly, let's say, when the people are, you know, crashing the gate to the Chicago World Fair so that they can see the latest thing, okay? (laughs) That's right, yeah, 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 yeah. So there we are in a single lifetime, we have this, this transformation of the way that people regard technology and technological change and the numbers of people in the West. Now, you're absolutely right. I need to be a little bit more specific about that. So I'm talking about the urban West yeah. in many ways. Uh, or at least once we get into the United States and we have a large and relatively, historically speaking, relatively prosperous middle earth, uh, rural middle class, uh, uh, we're talking about people who have access to information and who have access to the technological choices that we're talking about. They can take trains, okay? They, they can go across the country 
by 1890, but oh, it's no big deal to get in a train and into a, uh, a train uh, in, in uh, Hoboken. Uh, Which, uh, and- uh, like, let's say 30 years prior to that, not even perhaps 30 years, uh, but some years prior to it, it would have taken him several months to go from, let's say, St. Louis to the coast of California with a wagon. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, no? by eighteen sixty, several months is a little bit of a stretch, but still, uh, uh, again, that's why I start. I started at eighteen twenty because, in fact, yeah. that railroad shift uh, mm-hmm. is beginning to take hold. So that by eighteen sixty, for example, uh, we actually do have the ability to move across certainly the eastern half of the United States. <laughs> Uh, very readily. I, I was and also already, referring to the earlier days, like 1820s, 1830s, right, when locomotives right, right, were right, not right, in, in, in right, wide usage. Right, yeah, right. That's right. But but you can see now why I tend to pick on the middle of the 19th century at the kind of transforming period, because you yeah. can now see these enormous shifts, both in terms of transportation and then uh, in the case of a telegraph in terms of communication. Uh, and these are these are, are astonishing uh, shifts. But, but may I pick up on one other aspect of your question? Sure, um, please. And that is, when you're talking about uh, who, um, one of the things that happens when you change, when technology changes choices, um, it changes the choices uh, in different ways for different people, as I've said. But that has an interesting implication that particularly historians should be paying attention to. How so? It changes. It changes power. The power relationships among people are fundamentally dependent on the choices that people have. That is to say, the effective choices. What can they really do? And it's sometimes here. When you say power, are you talking politics or are you talking consumership? I'm talking both. Both. Okay. I'm talking at all levels of power. In the sense that uh, if I am a, uh, let us say I am a craftsman. In, yeah. Uh, let's say I make pianos in 1820. And that's not a trivial craft, by the way, in 1820. Pianos no. are beginning to be popular. And then, uh, that kind of thing. By 18, let me get the date right, 1860 or 1870, my craft has been totally wrecked in some ways, if I'm not keeping up to date, uh, by the fact that I now have iron frames for my pianos. I can now stamp them out in large factories, and I and pianos can now be produced on a factory scale uh, that me, a little old piano maker of 1820, are totally floored by. So you're uh, upset because of this new technological advancements in manufacturing. Is this putting well, you out of the job? If I haven't kept up, yes. Or yeah. it's forcing me. It's forcing me to do things in a different way. That's right. So when you look at, at, at whether people like disruption or not, again, you have to put it on that personal scale. Uh, I, uh, 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 an aspiring middle-class uh, woman of 1860, I'm delighted to have these new pianos available to me, okay? Uh, my parlor I see, is that's now, the other side. 
Uh, depending exactly. depending on who you're looking at. So this is, exactly. you're not looking at it as disruption in a negative sense or if with any ill connotations, you're welcoming it because now not only you can play it, you can have a less expensive piano for your children. Right, right, that's right, exactly. Or let's take the classic example of technological resistance, the Luddites, uh, the the machine breakers of Britain in the uh, around the 1820s and 1830s. Uh, the classic Luddite is actually a handloom weaver, uh, somebody who uh, uh, makes their living, not a great living, I might add, but nonetheless makes a, a, a dependable living uh, by taking in cloth, and by 1820, I mean taking in uh, uh, thread and yarn, mm-hmm. uh, and, and by 1820, that thread and yarn, I might add, it, 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 it made in a big factory with machines. Uh, but I am doing well because my thread and yarn, thanks to those machines, it become a lot cheaper. But nobody come up with a good way of, of weaving. But when the weaving machine began to come in in the 1820s <laughs> and 30s, I am livid. Uh, but Again, I'm a, now I turn my attention to a consumer, uh, even a relatively poor consumer on the east end of London. Wow, I have cloth now. I can actually get, and not <laughs> just any cloth, really nice cloth, not crude, roughly woven stuff, but really fine cloth made of linen or cotton or a combination or wool and that sort of thing. Knitting machines also come in at the time so I can have stocking. Oh my God, that's fantastic. But the, the stocking uh, knitters uh, of Nottingham are <laughs> going beside themselves because of course these machines are uh, uh, throwing them out of work. And, 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 uh... The way I remember that history, it's been a while that I've read about it, but they actually take to violence and it takes yes. uh, yeah. the uh, British government and imprisonment and executions to yeah. sort of quell that uh, rebellion. Um, that's a great example. And the term Luddites, Luddites has sort of stuck with us ever since. Um, I, I want to bring up two cases I've always wondered about uh, when electricity transitions from its early years where you were saying if you can afford it to have lights in your home and i'm just talking about lights what happens to thousands and thousands of candle makers <laughs> are they out of a job is there is there a backlash <laughs> well well it, it it works a little differently in that there is a transitional technology at least in the urban west uh and that is uh gas uh, so oh, that's right. again, yeah, 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 yeah. from the 1820s, uh, we began to get gas systems coming in, and, and again, typical of these technologies, they come into large cities first, and sometimes only the wealthier part of large cities. But gradually, they're growing, and they become the basis for street lighting, which is a pretty amazing technology in itself when you think about its social and economic implications. But we are, we have these gas systems, so in fact. When the electric light started to be available in the 1880s and in the 1890s, 
there are not that many people crying for the gash people. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the gash people are unhappy, but uh, everybody else, <laughs> they haven't made any great friends, I might say, at this point. Uh, so to break the gas monopoly, in a sense, is part of what of what's going on. So it's, so, it's uh, the candle makers. Uh, uh, nobody is worrying about them by by the 1870s or, or 80 for the most part. Uh, I, I think I can say. Interesting. That's a that, that, that's that's a great point. Uh, the transition takes some time. Um, I just wanted to share with you. It's not a question. Just I'm just sharing something interesting. Uh, that I experienced as far as technology. Uh, during the break, I told you that I used to practice patent law for a New York law firm. And uh, they had a word processing department. Uh, and I practiced for several years. And I could never find a reason to use the word processing department. <laughs> like, what, I, do you, what do you use it for? I, I type, I correct. And Yet the word processing department continued to be there because the older law partners, uh, so I was, you know, 20 some years old, they were in their late 50s or 60s and some 70s. Uh, They would come, they would handwrite stuff, give it to the word processing department, they would turn that around. Um, By the time I was there, word processing was still doing that for the older partners, but they were also transitioning themselves into graphic designs and graphics and what have you. It's kind of like what you were saying about the piano craftsmen. If you don't keep up, right. you're obsolete. You become obsolete. Right. That's, that's, that's sort of my personal experience with that. But there, there's another, another example. Uh, if I can attach to that, uh, Please? That is, uh, I went through something of a similar uh, experience, but in a very different context uh, uh, of an academic setting. Uh-huh. And, and when I started at the University of Maryland, there were secretaries. And when you wrote a paper, you were expected to write it in whatever form you had and then hand it to your secretary. And they would then give you back some kind of, of uh, typescript. Uh, that, that was point. presentable, and, actually, right? <laughs> exactly. And you had to go through these you know, various iterations. And, of course, uh, uh, I, I, I started at Maryland in the in the, in the early and mid 80s. So already, in fact, the secretaries uh, had been issued uh, a portable uh, computer, the first, uh, what we used to call luggables. Uh, luggables. The Osborne and the Capo computers, big fat things that you could, that were uh, uh, nonetheless cheap enough that you could actually fold them up and into a suitcase size uh, device. Uh, and, and so you could see the secretary undergoing the transition. Uh, uh, and then eventually the professors are basically said, here, here's your computer, you do it. Uh, yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. So, so that, that's actually our classic example of, of technological unemployment, if you will. Uh, but it takes, it takes time. So, uh, it's not that you're firing all the secretaries. It's just that when the secretary quits or moves on or finds something better, you don't hire another one. You just give a couple of more professors com- some computers. Uh, and that, to me, was a very interesting uh, experience to see how technological displacement actually worked. You know, in, in all of the examples, whether it's personal to me and you or going back in history that we talked about so far, None of the technological 
transformations are cataclysmic. I'm I'm, I'm using that in sort of in the temporal uh, setting. They're not right. sudden. Here, everything changes. All of it seems right. to be transitional. Uh, I'm sure for the person who doesn't have a job at some point, that becomes cataclysmic. But largely, is, is my assessment correct here? You're right. I mean, I mean, the, most of these of these transitions are uh, are in fact uh, very gradual, uh, and uh, if we begin to discuss AI, I will illustrate to you how astonishingly gradual that all is. Uh, uh, that that these things take typically a couple of generations to actually. Uh, uh, begin to to uh, burrow themselves deeply uh, within society uh, and that 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 is uh, that is typical uh, i'm I'm excited to discuss with you uh, uh, AI's impact on society and we have a whole segment on that that's going to come up uh, and um, to just confirm what you're saying even though the automobile was invented and was used by some people, the elite in the society, it took many, many years, decades before it really started changing society and you started seeing it uh, in white usage on the streets. Uh, we'll be back after a short break to talk about our, our culture of constant improvement. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right, for the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. Fidel, please tell us about your book, the title, which is A Culture of Improvement, Technology and the Western Millennium. Um, the book was a result of the fact that I... Uh, have been teaching a survey of the history of technology in Europe and America uh, for several decades. Uh, and uh, after a while, I realized that one of the things I did in the courses was uh, constantly complain to the students about the books that I was giving them to read. <laughs> so, so you were giving them several I, I, books to read. <laughs> Right. Oh, yes. Yes. There was no there was no really good textbook uh, uh, at the time. And so I finally basically said I should put up or shut up, uh, I suppose, <laughs> uh, which, which had interesting, complicated, interesting uh, uh, consequences uh, for my teaching later. But uh, we can get to that. Uh, but in any case, in, in the course of, of teaching the history of technology, I had come around through starting my uh, discussion uh, in the European Middle Ages. And I should hasten to say, uh, I was, uh, because this was my training, this was my strength, and also because I thought it was intellectually defensible, I focused on Europe and North America uh, to 
uh, not the total, but almost total exclusion of the rest of the world uh, for the most part. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I can defend that choice if I need to. But um, uh, I decided that uh, it would be useful to try to sit down and organize my thinking about the technology over the last 1,000 years and to see if there were some themes that I could tease out from that large themes. story. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay. Yeah. Themes are a good thing, I think. Yeah. Uh, if, you can, if you can find them. Um, so uh, uh, it took me a, a good while to uh, of just simply surely uh, thinking through uh, what made the story of technology in the West hang together. Uh, and I remember uh, how kind of uh, abashed I was when I said, well, there is this pattern of improvement that is going on. And I said, well, boy, that sure sounds simple minded. Uh, but then I thought a little bit more about what I meant by technological improvement and what people in the past had meant by technological improvement. And I realized that there was something more subtle going on that I thought people had missed. And it's this, that we, we human beings, I think, and this is a, a premise, okay, that I, that I make. Uh, we human beings have, in fact, a capacity, even a proclivity for thinking of, that we can do things better. That uh, uh, you see this in children, especially. Okay, you know they're constantly experimenting. I want to see if I, <laughs> how can I build my pile of blocks higher? Uh, uh, how can I, you know, uh, tease my little sister more effectively? Uh, <laughs> I love that. What, whatever it is. Uh, uh, and then I realize, well, you know, there's a degree to which all of it do this. Uh, I like cooking, for example. So I get into the kitchen and I'm trying to make something and I say, well, what if I put a bit more basil in this spaghetti sauce or or maybe throw some capers in there. Now that's kind of radical. But I Sounds good to me. To, well, exactly. But not to everybody, I, I tell you from experience. Right? Okay. <laughs> in any case, you, you, uh, you're experimenting and you're trying to to tweak things, to improve things. And, and, I, and I had this sense, I hesitate to call it an insight, but it was what I perceived, which was that much of technology is in fact to be seen as not a matter of great invention. And believe me, I love great inventions. I write about them. But yeah. much of technology is in fact to be seen in terms of the small improvement, the incremental improvements. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And, I, and my premise was that, that human beings, all human beings, from the beginning of, of, of what we would call uh, reasonably large-brained uh, hominids, uh, uh, do this. They experiment. They, they, they tweak things. They try to improve things. But then I, I, I had another thought, which, but something obviously happened to change the way that we do that that we improve things, that we make technologies, something changed over some time in the last 500 years or 1,000 years for that matter, but something. And that's when I began to think that, well, what changed is that we came up, at least in Europe, 
and then in the European influence parts of North America, we came up with the means of uh, taking those improvements, which are typically quite ephemeral, uh, and making them less ephemeral. The term I came up with, for lack of any better one, would capture. So there were... Could you give an example of that uh, improvement? Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, uh, One of the reasons that I talk about technology in the West from 1000 onward is that about the year 1000, you know, the 11th, 12th, 13th century, we finally begin to get writings where people are actually describing things. They're putting down recipes. Which goes back to Gutenberg that you were talking about. Right. But even before Gutenberg, I'm beginning to write it down. The monks are telling me how, in fact, I dye cloth, for example, or or, uh, that kind of stuff. So I'm beginning to to get a bit of that. And and I'm also even beginning to get a bit of celebration uh, 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 by the 14th 14th century, just before printing. We're beginning to get people talk about, uh, for example, the the first uh, the first monk who who describes uh, uh, spectacles and eyeglasses. The fact that we can, uh, I I've just I've just got news that that this guy uh, uh, over uh, in the next city over uh, is taking these lenses and he's putting them in front of eyes and and people can see better. Oh, wow, isn't that crazy? Uh, he writes, oh wow! Uh, and that and that and that find that invention that discovery doesn't fade into history because right. someone has written it down and right, and right, and right. now there are records of. But it's not just that the invention doesn't fade. I you know I'm reasonably convinced that spectacle would have would have stuck around. They're pretty handy and and people like them. But what what what's important to me is that somebody is celebrating it. Because we we don't get that kind of celebration before. We don't get this 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 somebody actually saying, "Wow, here's something new under the sun, and isn't it wonderful?" It's much more common historically and for humans to say, "Here's something new under the sun, and oh my God, what am I going to do about it?" That's a very different kind of response. Uh, but now, when we begin oh. to get to the point where we're celebrating it. That's that's quite different, and I wanted to I wanted to understand that process by which we created what I call the culture of improvement, a a a, a broad set of cultural values that actually promotes improvement. It makes it easier. It makes it more uh, uh, acceptable. Uh, previous. Previously, uh, in in the pre-modern periods, if I change something, I have I am challenged to say why, and who's going to be hurt by it. Okay, uh, the assumption that if I change things and it's actually going to be good for most people, maybe not everybody, but for most people, that is a new assumption historically. And it's one of the reasons why the Europeans, I think, begin to be a very exceptional culture from the high Middle Ages onward is because they begin to 
accept and to actually seek out changes in the ways in which they do things, as opposed to challenging them. Um, there, uh, as you're talking about this theme that is really fascinating, I had not thought about the shift in perception uh, towards new um not just technology, just new ways, improvements. It doesn't necessarily have to be technological, just could right. be new methods of doing something. Um, one of the things that I thought of, and I don't know if this is something that you picked up, if we fast forward in history, let's say now we're um, somewhere in the late 1600s, uh, early 1700s, does money play a part in in acceleration of improvements. And, and what I mean by that is this, uh, patents come out, like, you know, they started in Venice and they traveled, they went to London and then uh, France and then to the US. And not just from, I'm not interested in the sort of a legal perspective is that those that came up with new ways and, and inventions saw an opportunity to also make money out of that to, to better their lots in life. So it wasn't just that you invented something and, you know, it went to the king or queen. Now you could actually become part of sort of the, you know, the, 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 the entrepreneurial class that wasn't really thriving many, many, many centuries past. Is that assessment uh, relevant to, to the, I guess, the, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, although I have to confess, my my attention draws not is drawn not to the money, but to the accounting. The accounting. Uh, in other the accounting. In other words, how do we know how rich we are? Okay. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's something that changes. We see that changing in the Renaissance. Uh, we begin to think about double entry bookkeeping, for example. How do I know how much I owe as opposed to how much I actually have coming in and how much I actually own, possess myself? It's that ability to think in new and creative ways about the money itself. Uh, about uh, That's why I say accounting. It's about how do I know how much I have? how much I have coming in, where it's coming from, who's it coming from, that sort of thing. So it that, I think, is is a really interesting innovation that goes along parallel to the technological uh, changes uh, of uh, uh, of the uh, from the 14th and on into the 16th and 17th century. It, my ability to think about about money in in creative and even abstract ways. Think about that, the fact that I can abstract the whole notion of how wealthy I am. I don't have to sit on a pile of gold. I can have, I mean, credit, for example. Credit is all about the abstraction of money and of keeping track of it. You don't need to physically possess it. It, it, it can, it, right. that's really interesting. Right. Um, uh, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Friedel as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. 
Dr. Fidel, is the case of AI, artificial intelligence, different than prior disruptive technologies or improvements that we talked about? No. No. <laughs> that no. was a that, that okay. That was a categorical right. no. <laughs> okay. I I could have said uh, we don't know yet, uh, but I so I'm because we don't know yet, right? It's yeah, a, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, but from what I do know and from the history of the topic, uh, uh, I would say no. Uh, for example, uh, I'm thinking about this question of, of how do we put AI into some kind of historical context. I did a little bit of digging. Um, uh, thanks, I might add, to the Wall Street Journal uh, uh, a few days ago, uh, which had a nice little list of books about artificial intelligence. And they were smart enough to mention uh, uh, a, a book uh, uh, by Joseph Weizenbaum, uh, uh, who wrote a wonderful work. He was an MI, at MIT. Uh, he wrote a wonderful work called The Computer Power and Human Reason. Okay. Uh, but what's interesting about this, and it talks, he talks at great length about artificial intelligence and AI. What's interesting about this book is that it was published in 1975. <laughs> 1975? Yes. Oh, okay. So, uh, this is why I say with some that's, confidence. That's no. 48 years ago, okay. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, here we have a half century, at least a half century, of discourse about computers and intelligence and artificial intelligence and where it goes and what it will mean and all of that. Okay, now a half century, I think you will agree, certainly in terms of our discussion of modern technology, it's not a trivial span of time. No, it's not, no. So from that point of view, uh, AI is, in fact, following a trajectory that we've seen before, which is to say, give us a couple of generations and maybe it'll be important, all right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so now, having said that, and without, I don't want to be too facile about this, uh, technology do uh, achieve, uh, for lack of a better term, a sort of hackneyed term, uh, tipping points. Tipping points. Uh, uh, you have alluded yourself to the automobile, to the fact that there's a period of, of several decades when the automobile is a rich man's toy and, and uh, some people have it and some people are beginning gradually to adjust to the horse carriages and that sort of thing. And then we get Henry Ford and a few other inductors who have to be given credit to uh, coming up with the mass production of automobiles. And sure enough, within the space of a decade or so, the automobile function within society and it's and it, the effect that it has on American society certainly uh, is transforming. So Possibly, but only possibly, I would say, AI may be moving from this long, torturous prehistory into something where there is a critical mass, a tipping point, if you will, where its intrusion into various uh, parts of life uh, is unavoidable. 
and has significance for the choices that people make. But we don't know yet. Let's, let me ask the question that I asked from this specific perspective. There's much fear about AI and how it can improve itself. Not that it can be improved only, that it can improve itself based on the information it gathers. Um, so sort of it can self-smarting, if you will. So there's this fear that it'll, it'll, it can, you know, become uh, dangerous to society, to, to, to humanity. Were there such fears uh, going back in the late 1800s, early 1900s? Once in a while, you see black and white and some silent movies. I actually Googled some uh, earlier, um, last night, of like robots uh, attacking humans. Um, well, I mean, going all the way back to to uh, uh, Mary Shelley, <laughs> and, yeah. Oh, of course, yeah. Doctor Frankenstein Hunt. Uh, we we have some concerns about our artificial creations and and how they can get out of our control, uh, and certainly that's a, a theme uh, that gets through the twentieth century. It gets reiterated time and time and time again. Uh, uh, some Universal Robots uh, by Carol Shapak was where the term robot coming from from uh, the uh, Czech language began to make its way into uh, into modern English, uh, and that goes back to the eight, to the 1930s. Uh, so uh, the, the certainly in in terms of robots and the robotic form of AI. Uh, that kind of concern had been around for 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 quite a while through much of the 20th century, uh, and it, and again, it, it's a concern that's rooted in some reality. That is to say, people are seeing machines that are becoming more quote autonomous unquote uh, than they had before, and that too goes all the way back to the 19th century. If you really want to tease the threads of it. But certainly from the 1920s and 30s, when uh, electric and then electronic control began to make their way into machinery and a whole host of devices, people began to be concerned about what it means to, to have machine autonomy. Now, um, what we're what we've seen in the last, but again, it's not new, and certainly the last 30 years when industrial robotics had really become quite a mature field, we see concerns about what happened when the machine gets smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter, okay? Yeah. Uh, but as I said, that is not a new concern. And uh, the argument can be made that some of the AI advances of the last three or four years, uh, large language models, for example, uh, the gigantic amount of data that can now be taken just scraped off of the internet at, at, at tremendous scale, uh, servers uh, of enormous size and speed that can now process that data. Uh, I, it wouldn't take much to convince me that we are at the tipping point level. But uh, what I would say, have if, even if I concede that, is we are dreadfully bad at predicting what the consequences of that are. 
We really don't know. <laughs> and, and, and one of the things historians can contribute to this discussion is to emphasize how bad we are at this. Uh, we really aren't very good at it. Uh, it doesn't mean that we can't try it. We have to try. We, we, uh, we don't go into, into things uh, uh, blindly, just saying, oh, well, what will be will be. Uh, we have to think about, about understanding the consequences. Uh, but our tools uh, for doing this uh, are, are very crude. Uh, and uh, AI, I think, is, is, is no more predictable in terms of its consequences than any of the other historical examples that we can get. Um, some time ago, um, I had a professor uh, and other scholars such as you in our program, and he said something very interesting when you talk about predicting. He said, early on, everyone was thinking how good automobiles would be for the environment because you wouldn't have all this manure and filth in the streets. Exactly so, right. Uh, uh, automobiles were actually pitched as a good, as like an environmental thing. Um, Can I give you another example because it's even closer? Please do. Um, because I've been doing a little bit of research on this lately. Uh, the first plastics. Plastics. Plastics were, in fact, introduced to help save animals. Oh, come on. <laughs> How? The, um, <laughs> the earliest plastic, uh, uh, the first, uh, it, you can change your definition, but the, the first thing that was really identified and understood by people as a general use plastic was a material called celluloid. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, celluloid were primarily uh, initially developed as a replacement for ivory uh, because people oh. were concerned about the decimation of the elephant population as early as the 1850s. Uh, and uh, there were other uh, delicate populations that were also being uh, threatened. Uh, uh, tortoise shell, for example, come from a very limited uh, range of tortoise species, uh, the hawkbill tortoise. So if we could come up with a synthetic kind of tortoise shell, which we did, uh, uh, those, uh, those turtles will be in good shape, okay? Oh, so, wow, that is just wild. <laughs> Wow, um, you're right. We don't. We 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 are very poor at predicting what happens once we start changing things. Um, Dr. Friedel, if you wanted uh, our audience to remember just one point about technological improvements <laughs> after everything we've talked about, <laughs> what would it be? Just one point. Never, never forget that technology is at root a human activity. We human beings create technologies. We human beings are in charge of the technologies, okay? Uh, and the technologies have the flaws and the foibles of human beings. That's a good point to remember for artificial intelligence, right? Yes. Dr. Fidel, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so very much, Dr. Fidel. My pleasure.
The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.